Hey guys, um, I'm hoping that the, oh yeah, my audio seems to be working. Um, yeah, hey everyone. Um, yeah, just if anyone can confirm in the chat that uh, that the audio is coming through, then we'll get rolling. Sound is great. Cool. All right. Um, so yeah, welcome to this. Uh, I think this is like the third, the third live stream I've done for for Q and A. Um, it's obviously um, yeah, it's titled the birthday live stream. So uh, uh, yeah, a week ago was actually my birthday, but also it's a birthday of going full time because it was in March, March, twenty twenty. I went full time. Uh, that first full time episode was um, the work of Gurdjieff. So it's always a it's always a nice birthday uh, thing on March to, that, that I made that decision. So it's always fun. Um, any any questions that people have that they want to ask me, just bung them in the chat. I have got the chat up. So um, yeah, let me know. And if the uh, the Shire music is isn't is is too loud or isn't loud enough, then let me know. But I'll I'll jump in with uh, basically any questions. But I've got some uh, that people have been asking me, uh, and this is one that someone asked me about <laughs> three times. So I have to make sure. I, I didn't think it was all that important, but uh, they seem to think it was. So I've got to make sure I get it in here. Um, someone asked me, what does my <laughs> what does my sleep schedule look like, and how do you wind down before <laughs> how do you wind down before bed. Uh, oh, there seems to be audio feedback. Um, hmm. There shouldn't be an audio feedback. I don't... Let me... There's a voice repeating in the background. I know why it is. There you go. Should be gone. Uh, it might not update straight away with you guys, but yeah, it'll be gone now. Um, so, yeah, someone asked, uh, what does my sleep schedule look like and how do you wind down before bed? Do I have a morning routine? Uh, my sleep schedule, the last two months has been dreadful and I finally found the cause, which was the, uh, the, uh, the, the kidney stone. <laughs> so it's sort of back to normal. Yeah, I did have the stream open in another tab. I've I've uh, I've muted that now. So it, just let me know if the feedback is is gone completely. But it should be good. Yeah, it's gone. Cool. Um, yeah. So my sleep schedule is sort of back to what it was, and my sleep schedule really at the moment is about. It's sort of like go to bed around one or two a.m. and get up around between seven and nine, seven and ten. Um, I don't like sleeping. Um, I like sleep. Don't get me wrong. I like sleep and I could sleep for, for, for England. Um, but, um, I don't like sleeping cause I like being, uh, I like being, uh, alive and, and not wasting time. So there's that, uh, how do I wind down before bed? I tend to, I tend to not wind down before bed, which is really bad. I mean, actually bring in a bit of a Gajifian theory just to kick us off in the deep end of things. Gurdjieff basically used to argue that that uh, no one actually really needs more than uh, between one and six hours sleep a night, um, and the reason that uh, people need a lot of sleep is because 
that their emotions, their intellect or their physical body is still working in some way. So if you're having dreams, he's saying that your intellect and your emotions are still working. So you're still working whilst you're asleep. And that's why you need so much. Whereas if you could truly shut off everything in your body, uh, your mind, your emotions and your body, then you would only need an hour. Uh, and he used to say that the amount of sleep that children need uh, is um, if they held a pen in their hands as soon as they're so so asleep that they drop it that's all they need which you know one day i'll get to that level but uh generally i can go i can go a day of four hours sleep i can go a day of 12 hours sleep um do i have a morning routine uh my morning routine generally is always to try and do uh the the morning preparation uh from the gurdjieff work which is is a little bit different to a meditation and i tend to say try uh, trying to try and remember to either say my prayers or do a contemplation but I won't go into the specifics of that but I mean people some people get very funny about revealing what it is what what their personal um practices or personal little things that they do are and you know I'm not going to reveal every single thing that I do but I don't think it's too bad because ultimately the results are on you and so uh you know um it's whether or not you know I don't think people are gonna try and imitate me so yeah, I mean that's that's the sleep one. Is there any chance that maybe you can have Keith Woods on your podcast? Um, I've watched a lot of Keith Woods stuff, and I've watched a fair amount of Keith Woods, and I think he's doing good stuff. But I don't think uh, I don't think the overlap's really there. But that's nothing against Keith Woods. I mean, there's a lot of people that I'm interested in that just at this point, uh, Hermetics is uh, sort of slowly finding its feet after <laughs> after uh, almost four years uh, of what it exactly is. So yeah, and and. I'm not as interested in politics these days. I've gone more towards theology and and back to back to philosophy and things like that. So, yeah, if I had ten million dollars, what would you do with hermetics and all your personal work? I'd keep doing hermetics. I did. I you know some people who are newer to the podcast won't remember, but I did hermetics for free for a, well for, with no payment for a year with a tiny tiny amount that wasn't even covering the costs for about another year or half a year and then I only did full time you know from corona so um I've done it about even now the amount of time on both sides I wouldn't stop it it's still my uh it's my my one love my baby so yeah uh if I had 10 million dollars what would happen with my personal work I think I'd have more time to just do bigger things bigger projects and uh you know at the moment I'm really into world building and I want to I want to uh do the typical male thing of start building a what a fantasy world just just as enjoyment and uh i might might spend some more time doing my hobbies but um i would just yeah i think i think uh yeah i, I wouldn't abandon it i'm not someone who has a huge appeal to go on holidays or, or go out all that much or buy a yacht or anything like that like this is the thing i want to be doing so i'm doing it so uh, you know i'm trying to live my life in a way that any huge uh, uh, changes to it like a like a 10 million dollars or things like that or or, or whatever wouldn't change it because it's exactly what I want to be doing and of course not everyone can do that I'm super super lucky uh, not that not that I earn tons and tons of money and I'm not complaining about that either um so yeah um not much would change to be honest I mean that's a very very boring answer um I would probably wouldn't even buy I might just just ask to buy the the apartment that I'm renting that'd be about it <laughs> um oh actually no I'll tell you what 10 million dollars what I would probably do is do like a Joe Rogan setup so I'd have a full podcast set up like that and maybe invite the guests to come down that would be nice uh, you know that would be a cool thing to do someone asked what are my favorite 1v1 party or party games 
I really, I mean, one, uh, do you think I'm the kind of guy that goes to parties? <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, no, I don't really go to parties. Um, party games. Sorry for whoever asked this question, but yeah, uh, no. Um, I'll do a few of the, I mean, these ones I've got in a text document, but I'll do a few of the um, ones in the, in the chat. What do I think of McIntyre's work? I mean, I want to do some talks on uh, After Virtue fairly soon, but my grasp on Aristotelian um, philosophy isn't, I don't think it's really up to, up to scratch at the moment to do those talks. So uh, I'm taking my time with it and, you know, it's, it's, um, it's uh, one of those, you know, sort of become a canonized philosophical text. So I really want to take my time with it, especially with the Catholic thing as well. And I want to look into McIntyre's background as well on his conversion. So there's a lot there for, for me to go with. And, uh, and, and, and as of recent, it's been a while. I mean, with Edith Stein, I'm getting back into it, but she's actually not too hard going. It's been a while that I've spent, uh, you know, a lot of time with uh, like a bit, a big philosophical text or, or more of a dense one. Um, Am I still familiar with Sayed Hossein Nasser, the protege of uh, Thrishoshan? You should still interview him while he's still with us. Uh, I'll, I'll bookmark that and look look into it. Someone says they're currently reading Fiera Ben. I'm not sure how to pronounce that name. Some uh, Farewell to Reason by Fiera Ben. I don't know how to pronounce it, but I have. A, what's my opinion on him? People have been asking me to do a, question, uh, uh, a, a chat on him. And generally, if I haven't come across a philosopher at all, unless I've completely forgotten, like... Uh, Edouard Chouaret or, or um, a few of the other thinkers that I've I've tackled that there really isn't much out there on them at all I don't mind tackling them but with someone such as that where there's loads of work I have to spend a lot of time grasping their work before I sort of jump in I don't want to do this thing where I'm basically just relying on the guest and it's it's less of a conversation and more of an interview and I'm just poking the guest to go explain things explain things to me that's not what I want to do at all uh, so i don't really have an opinion on him uh, as of yet any plans to work with bob dobbs again uh, do you think he's really 100 years old uh hey bob i'm sure that's you uh yeah i i, I too, much to probably the the annoyance of some viewers i actually do have plans to work with bob again uh with bob and i want to do it with bob and uh, a guy called clinton um who is also a McLuhan uh scholar i believe or at least a specialist in McLuhan, you could say and um we're we're planning uh, to do a very, very long podcast to tackle a lot of the McLuhan stuff, which, you know, there's so much there. Um, but it's taking a lot of reading because outside of what I've already done with Bob with, you know, the electric age, Manipian satire and things like that, you're getting into these very um, strange areas of McLuhan, such as um, the Finnegan's Wake stuff and Counter-Strike and like the Wyndham Lewis stuff and Zappa and things like this, and well, especially with Bob. Do I really think he's 100 years old? Um, well, you know, you know. Yeah, I do. I do. I, you know, the guy, he sent me proof of the fact he's, he streamed for 144 hours straight uh, a few years ago. So I genuinely, he probably is 100. Um, someone said, my voice is so soothing. Do ASMR if you ever go hungry. <laughs> no. Uh, my political ideology. Um, well, I've always explained it like a, um, a hierarchy of... Uh, of not so much politics, but, but but things where, or not a hierarchy actually, more of a foundation and everything filters through. So Catholicism, then Gurdjieff, then Ernst Jünger's concept of the Anarch, and then you finally get to politics. And that for me would really be some form of monarchism, possibly even absolute monarchism. Um, 
but as I say, it has to filter for all those things first. Like those other things are in order of importance first. So, and after the anarch, it doesn't sort of make sense. But I think monarchism is generally the 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 form of governance which ironically allows the most freedom. Um, and if you read Hopper, uh, Hans Hermann Hopper, on this, he has some brilliant reasons as to why this is. Um, I'd of course, I, I do want to do some talks on on that book. What was my experience of doing a master's in philosophy at uni? If you recall, you did one of these. Did you meet any interesting people? My master's in philosophy was a continental philosophy at Staffordshire University. Um, what was my experience? It was a great experience. And even though sometimes Hermitics and myself come uh, come across as, as, should we say, academia critical, I, I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find an academic who is an academia critical. And so I don't really have a problem with, you know, I don't have a problem with the tutors or the course or the teaching or anything like that. I do have a problem. I'm critical of the abstraction, which is academia and what it's doing to philosophy at large, right? But you're asking me of my experience doing a master's. It was a great. His tutors were both great. Uh, David David Webb, who is my tutor, has been on the podcast um, twice to talk about the work of Michel Serre. Did I meet many interesting people? It was it was distant, so uh, you know I was working at the time, and but there was there was certainly um, interesting guests and things that came online, and yeah, it was a, it was a great course. <laughs> Any thoughts on Christopher Alexander? Uh, I don't actually know who that is. Maybe I should. Have I read? Blimey, have I read Peter Rollins? Any attempt on having him in on your podcast? I've read Henry Rollins. Oh, I want to get Henry Rollins on. No, I haven't read Peter Rollins. Um, any chance in future you could schedule these live streams so they don't clash with Novara? There's a massive crossover between your audiences. You mean Novara Media? There's a crossover. Hmm. Am I familiar with the work of Bonhoeffer? What is your opinion of his writing? No, I'm not. I'm sorry. I don't even know who that is. This is quite bad, isn't it? Uh, would you be interested in doing something on animal ethics, for example, on Zoopolis? Zoo, zoo, zoo uh, I don't know what Zoopolis is, but I would be interested in doing something on animal ethics, but I don't have the biggest grasp of it. I mean, the, the, I'm really behind the times on animal ethics because the only book I'm aware of is Peter Singer. Uh, so I have to apologise for that one. Um, someone says, happy birthday. Thank you. No cap, for real, for real. Or father, father, if you're from the church. Do you know Pokerunyan? He has a, he's a podcast called The Hermetic Hour that has been around for like 12 years. And no, I, I don't know. I mean, it's almost like I just live in a, I live in a bubble of my own creation, right? Like, I don't really know all that all these things that you're re referencing to uh i've sort of become an old man i think who would be your dream guest for the podcast at the mo uh hi i'd say um i have said this and i spoke to david scabina about it and really it was too late um but in terms of like what i could realistically get but at, at the absolute stretch my dream guest for the podcast would genuinely be ted kaczynski and when I spoke to David Scabina about this, it was just before the news came out that he was in hospital. And I was uh, thinking about writing to him and, and writing to the prison and saying, look, is there any chance before before he he um, he, he dies? Because it's terminal. Well, before he at that point, it was just understood that he's very old. Right. But um, at this point, I think it's completely, uh, completely gone. Uh, that The chance of that's quite unfortunate, really. It would be nice to it would be nice to. Um, you know, hear, 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 hear a, hear a, it'd be just nice to hear a discussion from him, you know, not in sort of sympathy, but just to hear it from in his own voice, I think, just before he goes, because uh, I'm genuine, genuine, obviously, I'm in clear agreement that in the next 10, 20 years, 
uh, Kaczynski's Kaczynski's going to be huge. He's going to be huge. It's going to be a cultural thing, uh, a cultural phenomenon, most definitely. Um, would you consider having a discussion with Jason Reza Giorgiani? I think it's a, one of my guests actually recommend. One of my guests actually recommended that I chat to him. Um, I don't know his philosophy all that well, but I've come across him a couple of times. Um, any interest in future Muslim guests? Uh, Timothy Winter was great. There's an episode coming up that I'm going to record on a recent publication of a book called The Son of Knowledge, which was a uh, sort of banned uh, Islamic mystical grimoire. Uh, and this is being released by Revelor Press, uh, Jeremy Johnson and um, the people there. And um, so that that's coming up soon. Um, Islamic mysticism, unfortunately, it's like jumping into this for me is, is even though it's an Abrahamic uh, religion of course it's a it's a huge thing to suddenly learn the whole structures of something else and and even more so to then go into the um the uh, the details of mysticism but one thing i'll say about the timothy winter uh, abdul hakim murad episode which was really the first step for hermetics to go into islamic mysticism or islam at all was the amount of uh, support i mean of course murad is a big guest in winter and, and, and winter is one of the, if not the smart, one of the smartest guests, who, you know, and quickest, uh, unfathomably smart guests that have come on the podcast. But the support uh, and the and the warmth from that community was fairly astounding uh, compared to many other episodes. So, yeah. Um, do I have any recommendations in analytic philosophy? Wittgenstein and uh, the the uh, an episode I'm soon to be uh, well uploading, not releasing it, be released near the end of April, is by. Um, a guy called Miles Hollingworth, who wrote a, a biography of Wittgenstein, which is is one of the best philosophical. You know, I say it's a biography. It's nothing like Ray Monk's biography. It's not a typical biography. It's philosophical work in its own right, and it's one of the best books I've read in five years, five ten years actually, uh, which is saying something. Uh, it was just astounding, astounding piece of. Uh, piece of writing uh it's just called ludwig wittgenstein um but if you look at the reviews it's sort of uh, not it's very hit and, hit and miss on the reviews it seems that people didn't really understand what he was trying to do but yeah um uh so oh, someone did uh, oh no that wasn't today when was that okay that's just subscriptions have i read any frank van dunn he's very similar to hopper but specializes in the philosophy of law his medieval history is great especially his defense of the church i haven't read any frank van dunn um but um, I'll look into him. Do I have any advice for screen-addicted people? I have a hard time unplugging and reading books. Hmm. Well, one bit of advice that, um, that I would give is that a lot of the time people, um, people do this thing where they... Uh, they are spending too much time on screens and they want to go, you know, and they have this idea in their head that if they weren't on a screen or if they weren't doing this, then all that time would 100% be spent productively, right? Like, as if this one thing stopped, then that that X amount of time, you know, let's just say, for instance, you spend four hours a day on a screen. Most people are spending way more, right? Let's just say you spent four hours a day too much on screens and you want to stop. A lot of people get into the habit of thinking that if they stopped those four hours on the screen, that all like that automatically those hours are going to become productive they're not you are going to find other distractions the screens aren't the problem unfortunately the ultimate black pill of this is you have a problem with distractions you don't have a problem with screens 
um, and people are giving advice, go for a walk, get a bike, uh, leave your phone in another room. This is really just a, a sort of a trick in terms of distraction, of, of changing the distraction um, in some sense. And what you, what, you, what you need to do is, I would advise in the morning, sitting for 15 minutes with your eyes closed and just trying to keep your attention on one body part uh, for that whole 15 minutes. And at the start, be very difficult. And over time, you'll, you'll find that actually that, that allows you to return your attention. And it's the idea of attention, which is, is very uh, is very pertinent here, because ultimately what you're doing in this to, to push it out into the bigger picture is you're simply not valuing your free time uh, or your finite time. And it's a question of what are you trying to distract yourself from and who is it in you who's who who wants to be distracted? Um, I mean, on a very practical level, yeah, you can do all these little tricks and loops and logical little things like all this. But at the end of the day, there is an underlying reason. I mean, this is like the equivalent of cognitive behavioral therapy for for personal uh, self 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 improvement. And it's like, no, go to the if you go to the root, it's going to be painful. But um, I mean, you've tried many things but failed every time. It's because uh, I'm not talking about you specifically, but you've tried many things. It's like, well, you're trying things. What you're trying to do there is you're trying to. Um, for instance, I mean, I'll bring in Gurdjieffian theory, but you don't have to agree with Gurdjieff at all. I'll just say the theory and, and go with that. What I would say is, let's think about it in terms of of, of, of that, actually. Let's think about it in terms of um, screens and screen use, right? And and distracting yourself with screen use and how the question of why it is I um, keep, keep, you know, going back to to screens, even though I don't want to. And actually, if you look into this, it's a complete paradox, right? Because apparently the very same person wishes to, on the one hand, not look at screens, but on the other hand, keeps looking at screens. Now, immediately you see the, the, the complete paradox here, that there's one person who doesn't want to do the thing and one person that does the thing. So these two people can't exist as the same person. That doesn't make any sense. So what you need to understand is whatever way you want to think about it as the fragmented personality of the same eye or of different eyes that there is two voices that are contradictory in, in in you that are somehow existing in the same thing and you need to start asking the questions of why does this certain me wish to look at screens all the time and what is it avoiding and blah 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 and go into that voice and then go into the other voice as well and um, from that you, you, you'll learn more I mean unfortunately if you don't go to the root um, then you're just gonna you're gonna exhaust yourself uh, it's sort of avoiding avoiding whatever the, the main problem is, which probably isn't really a big thing anyway. Um, so someone there said um, meditation is just staring at another screen, the inside of your head. I mean, uh, no, but um, it, yeah, humans are meant to move. They're meant to, to act and to be in nature and too much interest. As you say, too much introspection can be pathological, but um Equally, it can be another another distraction, and I think um, the 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 current atmosphere of uh, self improvement for self improvement's sake is avoidance of intro, introspection. I mean, there's many many people, and I don't really want to criticize them all that much. But for instance, one almost absurd example is is Jocko Willink, right? Now, Jocko Willink is this is this like super tough marine guy who's really into self improvement, and every single morning he takes a, takes a picture of his watch at about half past four in the morning. But ultimately, it's like, well, what, but what are you getting up at half, half past four in the morning for? 
if you're getting up just for the sake of more self-improvement without an end, you've just become this machine uh, that's for the sake of progress and for the uh, progress for the sake of progress. Uh, without an end, I mean, really, really, there's no point. So in terms of in terms of one one thing is who is it who wants what is it one what is it you're distracting yourself from two you know you 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 stop looking at screens you're not suddenly going to be more productive so what is it that you're distracting yourself from who is it who wants to be distracted and 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 three what is the end goal right so if 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 the point would be is some people want to stop looking at screens as if it's a distraction but then they don't actually have some bigger task that they would work towards if they if they did stop looking at screens or distracting themselves or going on their phone or whatever it is, you need that first. The 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 culture needs to come before the activity. So you need the the thing that you're, you're that you're very passionate about. That before you know you're like right now I'm not looking at screens. I'm just going to be productive. And usually you find that you probably end up doing something that's pseudo productive. So I would that's my advice. It's not amazing. Um, any comment on Russia and Ukraine? Um, I mean, I have a lot of comments in a way. I mean, the, the, the main thing for me is just how quickly people, the, the, the Russia, the Russophobia is, is really harrowing to uh, witness, to be honest with you. Um, and I mean, ultimately, there's a lot of hypocrisy for most governments. So we're going to sanction them, but we're still going to take their oil because we need it for our energy needs. Um, but the Russophobia is fairly horrible. I mean, literally, Facebook's fine with adverts, which are basically utilizing russian people just as a scapegoat and um the absurdity of all this is, is is fairly crazy i mean the idea that people think that putin is some madman hell-bent on destruction it's just it's just um it's it's really unfortunate and just to see how quickly people saddle up with whatever whatever the supposed good thing is uh in abstract is is really uh it's worrying but it's it's not a surprise right um but uh, you know what I would say in terms of the Russian-Ukraine thing is, is it's another in a long line of events that will be forgotten as quickly as it was jumped on board. Um, can't see what the next thing is yet, but it could literally be here tomorrow and all of a sudden we would have forgotten about the Russia-Ukraine war. Um, so, yeah. Um, do I see any connection between the fourth way and the writings of Simone Weil, especially in relation to attention? There's definitely definitely a, a relationship there, but as you say, with the attention thing. Um, but it's been a while, uh, only since I did that interview on Weil's work, that um, I've, I've read any. So there's a, there's a, the, the, the key difference, however, would be that the fourth way's teaching on it is is, is done in such a way that you um, you can personally get into yourself whereas they as i as i understand and from what i read is really um speaking for herself and speaking about her personal journey so that's the big difference um do you think that in the future there are going to be guests related to east asian philosophy if someone if someone recommends me a specific thing they want me to talk about then i'll always do you know put the effort in and try and find someone that i can talk to about that so um if, if you want me to speak about east asian philosophy in some sense then i'm more than happy to What's your opinion about common sense? Uh, I can't remember. I wish I could remember the quote exactly from Alfred Uraj that says, the, yeah, the last stage of esoteric teaching is plain common sense. And that's how I feel about common sense is to be able to look at the world objectively is usually a very simple thing, but we, we bung a lot in the way of being able to do it. Um, I would love to read more you know, Thomas Reed, Common Sense Philosophy, because in Dan Robinson's lectures on Kant, which are 
phenomenal. He brings Kant into relationship with Thomas Reed and the common sense philosophers. Uh, and obviously we've got the episode coming up on David Stove, who's a big fan of the common sense philosophers. And I see a lot of that in him. So I probably, I probably, maybe I'll try find to find someone who I could talk to about common sense philosophy. Um, that would be pretty funny. Have I read, read about, or heard much of Tuenis? I don't know who that is. I mean, there's been about six people here where I don't know who they are, so I apologize. Besides reading and writing and all other podcast-related things, what hobbies do I have? Um, I like to build scale models. At the moment, I'm building a, a, a motorbike, a Honda CB400 uh, scale model, and I'm building a, uh, a HMS Victory scale model. Uh, it's quite fun. Other than that, blimey. I mean, the fact that I have to think about it, I ain't got that many hobbies. I mean, I, I just, I'm happy to read and write most of the day. Like world building at the moment, I'm doing, slowly getting into world building, which is very, very fun. Um, yeah. Um, so moving on to the questions which aren't in the chat. Uh, someone said to me, are more of my episodes going to have a video component going forward? Basically, if the, if the guest is okay with me... Um, recording the conversation and the video of the conversation then I, every single one that I can will have them I don't really know why I didn't do that from the start I mean it's it's a bit more awkward and it can make it a bit more awkward for the editing if uh, they, they need to go off to the loo or something happens or something like that and you you know with, with the way I, I do actually a lot of people haven't realized this but I do edit every single episode I don't edit things out but the ums the ahs the long pauses are all edited out uh, fairly seamlessly at times so with the video component, I just basically can't do that because, um, you know, uh, because you, the video becomes a stuttery thing. So that's the only reason, really. But, um, yeah, it, it's a bit more personable and, and people seem to enjoy that. So I'll be doing that as well. Um, oh, the, the the Tony's thing is it's a German name pronounced like Goethe. Hmm, should have specified that. My bad. Yeah, I've never read any Goethe, so, um, uh, you know. I'll, uh, I'll have to look into him as well. Uh, what uh, what conversations made you sp significantly question or even change your perspective on the discussed issue? Um, hmm. Conversations that have changed my perspective on the issue. The the David Friedman one on libertarianism actually uh, libertarians don't do a good job themselves of defending their cause. Their books do a good job, but usually when they're in conversation, they uh, they they don't do the best. No offense to David Friedman, it was a great chat, but after that, I I just felt it didn't go as well as I I, I didn't conduct it as well as I should have really. Uh, that's the only one. I, I it's a lot to think back on now. Um, I'll have to think on that one. I'm answering these other ones. Um, what do I... Th uh, sorry, what conversation... Uh, oh, what made me change my behavior and future plans? Uh, a lot of the chats with Greer... Um, a lot of the chats with Greer probably changed in terms of, you know, how I'm, how I'm living my life and things like that. But... Um, uh, yeah, there hasn't been too many that have changed changed my changed my plans. Blimey, no, not that I can think of. Unfortunately, I mean these these questions aren't going all all too well. Uh, what do I think of YB8s? I haven't read any YB8s. Very sorry. 
I said the other day that I'm back to consuming caffeine. Why did I go back? Uh, I'm back to consuming caffeine, which I'm consuming right now at half past seven at night. Um, um, because basically, after two months off caffeine, which is the point where they say, look, if you've done two months off caffeine, you can assess the benefits or the, the, the negatives and positives and see whether or not it's worth it either way. And um, you, you, you sleep so much without caffeine. Uh, it's quite astounding how much the human body sleeps without this. And to be honest, in a certain sense, I mean, for instance, when you go to sleep and you go outside and you go camping or you go in a cabin in the woods, you sleep naturally and you feel like you sleep how a human should sleep. Um, and you get these brilliant nights sleep that are very high quality and um, you, you only need five or six hours, right? But I feel like caffeine's needed in a modern world where you, you're just always sleeping unnaturally, right? Like blackout curtains and eye masks. Not that I have an eye mask. But, and then the super, super comfy beds and, and you know, things like this. It, it, it's, it's like you need caffeine in a world that is constantly, um, you know, artificial. You need artificial stimulants in an artificial world, basically. So I had to go back and very much enjoy it. Am I still working as a carpenter? If... So, how does it compare to past jobs you've had? Um, no, I'm not still working as a carpenter. I lost that. I lost that job because of Corona, and that's why I'm now doing this. It was a very enjoyable job. It, it, it's a very calm job in a way, and you, I, I really enjoyed it because it was good company. The kind of people that are in that work are very salt of the earth, and um, you're sort of just given your tasks, and you get on with them, and you don't have people over your shoulder, and you don't have customers, and you don't have admin, and it, you know makes it lovely. Um, but uh, Unfortunately, carpentry isn't as idyllic as people would like to think it is. I mean, there's not many carpenters out there who are sort of carving and hand-sawing. It's a lot of machines and things, but it's still a very nice job in a way. Am I familiar with system theory, perhaps even Lerman, Lumen or Lerman's version of it specifically? Möller wrote some books on it. Uh, I've heard of systems theory and that kind of thing. I sort of moved away from that cybernetic uh, and systems theory and game theory way of looking at the world. I just think... It tries to pigeonhole everything into some form, form of algorithmic equation for the human mind. And a lot of the time, in broad strokes, yeah, it's generally right. Um, but it, you speak to speak to the average person, you realize there's no such thing as the average person, right? Um, yeah. Um, but I, I'd do an episode on it. What occult path or book would you suggest to a man who is fighting bad habits addictions? Uh, it's not occult, but I... Bad habits or addictions, fine. I would recommend In Search of the Miraculous by Pili Uspensky, uh, which isn't a cult as far as I'm concerned. Um, but I would also suggest Bad Habits. Yeah, In Search of the Miraculous by Pili Uspensky. And I would also recommend chatting to your friends about it. Um, thank you for introducing me. That's no worries. Thank you. Uh, would you consider doing an episode on classical music? Someone like Bach or Scribin, Scribin. Yeah, I would. I would. Uh, I would consider it. But um, and I've considered episodes on film, but episodes on art. Uh, I imagine music would be as well, and um, things along those lines. It's very and literature even very difficult to talk about compared to theory. Um, it's it's. Yeah, it, so I would happily do one on classical music, but I think I'd have to find someone who's very, uh, very theoretical about it. Um, yeah. 
Your talks with Greer are great, but his views on Christianity seem very Protestant. Do you not push back out of respect, or is it just a policy on the podcast? Uh, a lot of people have, have commented this and, and, and even spoken to me about this before. I've said, why do, you, why do I not push back against guests? Um, and I just think it's completely pointless and fruitless to... to, to uh, maybe, maybe not. Maybe that's wrong. I have seen so much good, good, good potential discussion go to waste because of a personal gripe which then strings out across the whole conversation and you get a bad atmosphere you get a bad air about things and then all of a sudden it's no longer a discussion but it even can turn into a grilling an argument or a debate and that's just the worst way to handle anything it's the worst way to handle a podcast yeah but as far as i'm concerned i mean i released the one hour podcast transparent course for 25 pounds very cheap for this purpose to teach people what it is that makes a good discussion in terms of podcasting interviews and no one cares about the host the the topic is key the topic is the main thing the content is the main thing and all, all the rest is a load of nonsense and so to invite a guest on which a lot of podcast hosts do to then basically jump up on their own soapbox and be like here's what i think and here's why you're wrong really what you're doing is just making someone uncomfortable who's given who's volunteered their time and if they've come on and they've written a book they're a wealth of knowledge whether or not you agree or disagree with that knowledge isn't the point it's about asking questions which probe open the conversation which allow them to naturally and organically talk about the discussion uh, or, or the topic at hand and then you can decide for yourself whether or not you agree or disagree with them uh, there's you know there's very rare few instances where I think that it's actually going to be a good choice to push back against the guest because at the end of the day the best thing you can do as a host is, is make them um, is make them feel welcome and comfortable and feel like they actually want to talk about the work otherwise I find it to be honest a bit rude to invite guests on and and do that but um and it's why you know some people have said have you ever thought about like sort of soliciting a debate and I just I have no, no interest in debates debates don't do anything I mean people go to debates from their sides right so as soon as a debate starts it's already an it's already a clash and an argument uh, and you're very rarely going to get people who are mature enough to open up and say and admit even at the end that they were wrong or they've changed their views on something because they have to they're going there on a defense and it's one of the great problems in philosophy really i think in academic philosophy is the, the idea of defending something uh and and moving away from discussion and moving away you know the idea of a, a conference is very uh aggressive you know we're gonna have a conference about this people have got to defend you know defend thing defend your thesis and it's like from a from an attack i i don't think that's a very good way to go about philosophy but unfortunately you need some form of uh, value system to be able to have this form of credentialism i guess someone said am i a teacher of philosophy uh, i'm not like accredited or anything but I've, I've done talks on kant uh on the critique of pure reason i've done talks on other books if people wanted, wanted me to teach a book then i'd spend time with it but uh, because i have sort of a maximalist completionist mindset i end up just reading you know like for, for the for the kant chat i read read like two biographies and about four secondary works on it and listen to a load of uh, lectures. It took me so long. Um, someone says, so what I'm saying is Druidry is better than Christianity. I'm not, you know, unfortunately, I'm, you know, I'm not the best Christian because I'm not here to do missionary work. I, I don't really think that's how it works. Um, yeah. Uh, people, people, people are drawn culturally to what they're culturally drawn to. Is my own 
thing. Maybe I'll change in time with that. And I think Christianity has a, has a place for everyone. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, where's a good place to start with Schopenhauer? Uh, there's a there's a, a Penguin edition called I think it's just called uh, Essays. I think Essays and Aphorisms is brilliant. Uh, really good place to start just to get a feel for Schopenhauer. And then ultimately after that, read the fourfold route of s sufficient reason. But actually, you could probably read a synopsis of that on Wikipedia. It does a fairly good job because it's a pretty straightforward book. And then move into the world of will and representation. But in my opinion, I mean, even though that's a fantastic, um, you know, it, it really an extension of Kantian thought and it's doing its own thing from uh, Kantian thought, right? Uh, I think a lull. Uh, sorry, someone said a lull there. I think Schopenhauer is best when he's at his his spiciest, right? When he he's a fantastic aphorism aphorist. And if you read uh, the biography by I can't remember, he has Zalowski. Uh, you realise that you know Schopenhauer is very bombastic, uh, witty person, and so he comes through best when he's you know, almost Nietzschean. Um, and when he's just firing out aph aphorisms in that way. Um, so yeah, that's where I'd start. Happy birthday, James. Hope you have a good one. And thanks for the podcast. I just picked up violence by a lull because of the podcast. Thanks very much. Yeah, I'm really enjoying reading uh, Presence in the Modern World by a lull. It's answered a lot of questions. I think it's so, so, he's so fantastically clear and straightforward, which is really surprising because he's French. Um, you know, it's, it's a rare, a rarity. And he comes across Ill, almost like a C.S. Lewis type figure, you know, uh, which is which is great. Uh, who am I? Who are your favorite interviewers by interview skill style alone? You know, I've said this to people before and it's a super cliche thing to say, but whether you agree or disagree with with his own personal politics, which are clearly quite liberal, maybe. I think Louis Theroux is the master of interviewing. I mean... You know, he's gone into every single type of absolute extreme atmosphere and managed to come away uh, with some of the most personal, um, you know, answers to his questions that that one could get. You know, he's going to, uh, you know, these, yeah, as I say, extreme, extremely volatile atmospheres and somehow doing it. I think um, Theroux's great at that. Um, I don't mind Joe Rogan. I mean, Joe Rogan's fine. I mean, people people get on at Joe Rogan for like allowing things but he's he's doing really you know i sort of learned a bit from joe rogan in the sense of invite the guest on and just allow them to speak about their topic so for instance people get on at him because he's like inviting these people on who are vax critical but unfortunately if he invites someone on who's say critical of the vaccine and he just um pushes them against it you haven't learned anything you're just going to have this dramatic thing when nothing happens so and i think he's had from both sides and i, I you know i think i think it's a, it's a fairly he's fairly good um other than that um no i don't know too many others i'll have to think about that have i ever to, uh, considered talking with vincent garton about his work i've got his, his stuff bookmarked actually to talk about someone asked to talk about like accelerationism and catholicism which i think would really overlap with like horror for for garton as well um so, you know, uh, I'll have to message him soon and see if he wants to come on. I think he's probably working on... Um, so, I think he's working on a PhD. Uh, funniest philosophy text I've ever read. Uh, I've uh, recently read about a quarter, and I I don't really merge all that all that well with him. But um, 
Max Stirner, the translation by Wolfie Landstreicher, I think that's how his name is, is hilarious. I mean, Stirner is really, really funny. Um, at times, I would even say Emil Chiron is funny, just when it gets to the extreme of, of nihilism. Uh, Michel Serre at points is very, very funny, especially when he's talking about, you know, telling Socrates to just shut the shut the hell up. You know, that was just like, shut up, Socrates, uh, which is always really, really funny. And I think there's a huge place for humour in philosophy, but not of that Zizek type where it's like self-knowing humour. I just want, you know, I want people who are just dunking on other philosophers hard. David Stove, of course, I was reading some last night in, uh, I thought I had it here. I think I left it somewhere else. Yeah, I have. Uh, cricket versus Republicanism. I mean, I was just going through that, and it's so funny. Um, is there any way to integrate Nietzschean views of spiritual philosophy? Well, yeah, I mean, it's easy. Nietzsche, Nietzsche is a Christian. Um, <laughs> um, Nietzsche, Nietzsche and spiritual views, come on. Nietzsche is a Christ, Ian, right? So, like, I just, you know, it's just the saddest case of, like, I wish... I wish he just made the leap, because that's what he needed. Um, and he, he did. I don't think he. I don't think his his philosophy was really a success in any sense. And all the people that are self-proclaimed Nietzscheans, it just it just ends up into this sort of hedonistic thing again. I think you could tack on a spirituality, but without some form of transcendent godhead, if you want to um, talk about it, then then maybe uh, Robert Anton Wilson. How about Robert and Sam Wilson? I, I really like uh, Prometheus Rising was a was a, a game changer for me. Um, you know that was a real opening to a lot of spiritual stuff very early on, and and I also think that um, the Illuminatus trilogy is is really really funny. Uh, he's a, he's he's really funny, but there, there was a lot of there was a lot of nefarious stuff that came from Robert Anton Wilson, and that era of like chaos magic and things like that were a bit uh, a bit sketchy at times. But um, yeah, he's um, uh, yeah, Anton Wilson's all right. I haven't spent outside of that. I, there was quantum psychology that I wanted to read as well. It's on my list. Someone said uh, my grandfather once described me as somewhere to the right of Genghis Khan. Is this still accurate when it comes to my politics? Uh, that was always a, a running joke to make everyone in the room feel really uncomfortable when I arrived, which he seemed to love. Um, no, not 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 necessarily. I don't try. I, it's just pointless to concern yourself with politics, right? Like, I don't even know who Duncan Trussell is, but he has that fantastic quote of, like, somewhere there's some guy sat by a, a waterfall enjoying life, not knowing, you know, how how angry he should be at something, right? Because he hasn't got a, a smartphone. Uh, and that's sort of how I feel about politics. It's like, and, and people get up in arms about this because they're like, well, you're in some privileged position. People, people, you can't do anything. Um, you uh, you can't do anything. And to, 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 to get up in arms about something that or get angry or about something that you can't do anything about is, is really silly um and you know to go off the kajifian current i mean where uspensky when he's peter uspensky when he's his absolute most uh prodding you know prodding the wound of people who are uh, a bit whiny he says all negative emotion is is indulgence all negative emotion right but it's my favorite gurdjieff quote, quote and the one um the one I learned the most from was is when Gurdjieff and Uspensky are talking about war. It's very apt, actually, at the moment when Gurdjieff says, 
everything happens no one does anything you know because this whole thing was that people can't do anything that you have to you have to learn and earn free will um what i tend to look at that more metaphorically these days but um that idea and, and just to not get too indulged in the idea that you could somehow save all this and just to uh, you know love, bring it back to love thy neighbor in terms of your immediate environment it's far more helpful than having this sort of abstract uproar about something that that you haven't even seen firsthand and, and thanks to the absolute uh, entanglement of communication networks you just you'll never be able to get to you know it's like you're immediately just given a knot of information to sort out and you can't really do anything with it so you know to get up in arms and about that just seems a bit a bit false really um f f fn was obsessed with christianity in a way fn did we was there someone called fn i don't know favorite new testament book that's not one of the four gospels uh there's the the letter of james is it's really short but it's so good you know and I'd, i'd always say almost say to people if you just want if you just want like a, i think it's like four pages let me see if I can find it. I've obviously got my Bible on hand. Um, where is it? Um, but yeah, the letter, the letter of, the letter of James is, is. I probably won't be able to find it. I think it's right near the end. No, I'm not going to be able to find it right now. So sorry about that. But yeah, uh, look it up. I guess. Um, favorite ecological thinker. Um, Edward Abbey is fantastic, uh, you know, in mixing that sort of practical stuff in uh, the Monkey Ranch Gang with uh, Desert Solitaire, which is really, really good. Linkler, of course, fantastic. Um, I guess I like people who aren't looking at ecology too abstractly and tend to base their philosophy on something very localized, because I think that's the only way that, that, that ecology can work. I mean, I don't think that you can have the globalized form that we have and a, a, a sound ecology is just you, you've got to sacrifice something um so and people don't want to do that oh friedrich nietzsche okay fn for me will always mean fang numena and yeah um nietzsche was obsessed with christianity in a way and he, he was obsessed with christ right so so the death of god really translates as the death of christendom you know the death of an objective value system which um which which allows you to have a way to coordinate morals and ethics throughout society and once that's gone well every you know as uh dostoevsky says once there is no god yeah, dostoevsky once there is no god everything is permissible which is basically what what is being repeated by nietzsche with the death of god and um he was obsessed but he was obsessed with christ you know he's he he i believe i'm right in thinking that there was only two two people he ever considered as examples of the ubermensch and one one, it was Caesar and Christ, but Caesar was for him too egotistical and too sort of human. And quite ironically, Caesar is one of the people that C.S. Lewis puts at, at the furthest reaches of hell in uh, the Great Divorce, right? Um, but uh, yeah, he was he was he was a Christian. You know, he saw something in the Christ figure to to admire, to 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 use in a way. I mean, I you know, it's obviously a a disag- disagreeable thing for many Christians to see his reading of it, but. Um, I think you know. I, I, it's interesting. Uh, there was a time when I tried to read, tried to think uh, about Nietzsche in terms of Gurdjieffian <laughs> theory. Gurdjieff splits everything into body, intellect, and emotions, 
and and then when those three become harmonious work together you, you get the fourth sort of a conscious conscious man and if they're out of balance that's, that's where the problems lie and i remember thinking you know what is what was it for nietzsche that was out of balance because he had a relationship with the body with his constant illnesses which he overcame and his headaches and vomiting and sickness and his ascetic principles as well and his walking he had a relationship with the body and he clearly had a severe intellect and he, he clearly was a very emotional uh man as well and i think at the end of the day his emotions were so volatile and so big that they outgrew you know it was just so much for him and eventually just sort of collapses um what books on Alul have i read so far so obviously i've read techno uh the technological society we live in a society and presence in the modern world and then there's a few secondary the ones that i got from um jay you know jake rollison when i did those chats and i mean a little you know once again uh, frank frank uh, french philosophy these guys are like right you know i'm just going to write another four books this week uh he wrote something like 40 books and there's probably you know and i mean i don't envy scholars of these people i mean sarah wrote like six almost 60 you know uh, you're just constantly you're just constantly writing and none of it's that bad as well so you know it's all it's all very um it's all very interesting someone did say do i think gurdjieff probably made up parts of his biography um possibly i think you know possibly i mean you, paul beekman's taylor's biography is very critical of of this and um he 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 finds a lot there that it, it, it is up for question um um plato particularly in the republic is the ultimate gfian thinker i mean you know maybe maybe uh yeah so just keep asking the questions and i'll i'll, I'll keep going because i think this was all the ones that i had from the uh the discord and yeah if anyone has any more that that maybe a bit more in depth that i can go into uh, oh a little almost wrote almost 70 wow and someone says uh, happy birthday thank you very much uh Lawrence. Mm. oh and while i'm here uh i should probably you know i mean i'm dreadful at marketing and i don't care about it but uh, while I'm here, I will promote my latest little book, which is looking really good there on camera, I must admit. Uh, Be Not Afraid, uh, which is £10 or $10. Uh, it is uh, about 150 pages long, and it's a fictionalized conversion story of a nihilist turned Christian. So if you want a very short, enjoyable read, which in its own way is an introduction to... Uh, a very light entry-level Christian mysticism and how to think about the world, I think, in, in that conversion process from uh, relativism to objective meaning, um, then, the, you know, you, you'll enjoy it. Is the book autobiographical? I don't think anyone can write something that doesn't have elements of, of, of biography in it. And ultimately, this is uh, fictionalized autobiographical, yeah. Uh, I did work in a bakery for a while, but it wasn't this dreadful. Um and it wasn't in the basement; it was upstairs. But I combined some things. Um, it's it's bi it's autobiographical in a way, but I've tried to make it in the sense that it could apply. Really, this is a book for young men and women of the West who are feeling the same way, who have this, uh, who have who are maybe going through this process and and need a little nudge of how to how to just make things work and, and suddenly see them, um, you know. And and I, I, if it helps one person, just feel a bit. Uh, closer 
or go over to Christianity, then it, it, it's 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 done its job. Um, uh, favorite Tolkien character. Now we're getting to the good stuff. Now we're getting to the good stuff. Right. I mean, of course, when we because I'm I'm really into Tolkien at the moment. I've been reading it and I rewatched the the director's cut because it was my birthday, and it's what I do on my birthday. And since I've been reading it, I think they're two different things. They really are two different things. And the films are, are more hopeful, and Hollywood needed to do that. Um, but Boromir in the in the books and and he's done well in the film. I think he's one of the characters that is done the the, the best actually in the films as well. Is ultimately the, one of the most Christian characters in the whole thing, right? He he just wants to do his people right, but but his his pride and his fall really come from the fact that he has seen he has seen what can happen. He has seen the work of which of the ring. He's seen his people fall, and um, he, he's up there as my favorite one of my favorite characters. But I really I would have to say that my favorite character, unfortunate for people who've only seen the film, is Tom Bombadil, because Tom Bombadil is something in as an abstract symbol that we need more of in the modern world right this sort of um mystical anomaly which in uh ralph wood's book or uh, the gospel according to tolkien which is talking about the christian symbolism he understands tom bombadil as like an anomaly inserted by um tolkien to basically say that outside of bombadil right you have the valar and you have you have gandalf as basically these angels and the elves as angels and you can you can really form the christian logic around the whole thing right but bombadil he woods sort of argues that he's been added in as this like you'll never fully understand the world and god's plan and and bombadil what i like about him is he basically just says look i've outlined this area this local area of life and in this i'm a kingdom right he is the he is the true anarch um yeah i'm just trying to think of other characters i mean they are all they are all such such great characters and i'm i'm a sort of a sucker i guess for what they now consider very patriarchal and old school values such as you know heroism and courage and that you know the christian virtues of hope um but they're all great and i mean sam of course is 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 a, a fantastic character and, and um, the emotions that tolkien gave him are really beautiful um yeah um so yeah uh but it probably would be boromir or bombadil um hmm did I read Narnia as a kid? I didn't, I didn't, and I didn't really read that much as a kid. Um, I didn't even have really books. I couldn't go back and say these were my childhood reading. I started reading seriously at uh, about 16, thanks to an English teacher who was like actually good at his job. And uh, we were learning Steinbeck's uh, Of Mice and Men. And uh, we sort of finished it and he said, well, anyone who's interested, uh, the, the, the Grapes of Wrath is far better by Steinbeck and I remember thinking wait an English teacher is actually interested in in the books like he actually had an opinion on it and I went and read Grapes of Wrath and I had to agree it was better but uh, then he sort of said look here's some books that are better than basically what they were teaching which was which wasn't great but unfortunately that was the syllabus um I've talked before about dabbling in the occult and encountering some sort of evil presence that spooked you is it something you could talk about man this question comes up every time um The thing is, like, it's, it's, unless you're doing real serious stuff, like the, the Abram Malin or something like that, you're not going to have demons jumping up in front of you. you unless you're doing practicing goetic magic or something like that. You, you're not, it, it, you really described it there. It's an evil presence. It's an intu intuition that something's not right and you're, you're, 
uh, ultimately, if you ask for something, you have to pay it back. And uh, you need to remember that. And, and with, with Christ and with religion and with Abrahamic religions, when you, when you pray, when you, when you ask for something, or when you just pray generally, you're not just given it and then have to pay it back in, this, in the form of chance. You are given the strength to undertake it in within God's will. Or if you open yourself well enough, you are to understand why it is that you should, you, you aren't aren't to get that thing, and if you're in, introspective enough in terms of that that place within God's will, then you will understand why that wouldn't be for you. And often, a lot of this comes in retrospect. You look back and you realize that everything fell in into place um, because of these certain things. Um, yeah, um, but uh, you know, uh, one thing one one thing that you know, I mean, for those that were really enjoyed more of the quote-unquote occult stuff um on the podcast um soon <laughs> after i've finished the presence in the modern world i'm going to be beginning 22 well it'd be 23 because i'll do an introduction uh 23 talks on meditations on the tarot which is uh, a journey well a journey into christian hermeticism or an introduction into christian hermeticism uh via uh, readings and analysis of the, the the major arcana, and you know the surprising thing about the um, this book is that it one of the editions, though not this edition, actually has a afterword, I believe, by Hans Urb von Balthasar, who is a uh, one of the most well-known Catholic theologians. So that's going to be really interesting. Half of them will be for patrons, and half for um, free. So. Yeah, there'll be a lot of content from them. Uh, did I take the Rudolf Steiner pill yet? I read Gary Lackman's uh, book on Steiner, and I read a couple of other little bits, um, and for that Weber Steiner episode, um, and I've someone recommended Dale Brunswold, uh, and we're just in discussion about how we're going to go about it because he's 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 literally been reading and teaching Steiner for like forty years, so I almost want to like reel him in and be like. Can we just talk about every single Steiner text? Because, you know, it, it'll give me a lot, me, a, a, a lot to do. A lot to do. Um, um, and also, me and Aaron, uh, who did the Weber Steiner episode, we're going to be talking about Steiner's uh, Christology. So he uh, he has commentaries on all the Gospels and he has his own ideas around them. So we're going to be talking about Steiner's Christology as well. Someone said they always wanted to read the Meditations on the Tarot. So many of the listeners recommended an episode on Meditations on the Tarot, and that's why I want to do the um, do do all of it. And I, I I almost want to do the full thing, and then um, maybe maybe set up some form of discussion group where we can we, we can um, yeah chat about it. Uh, someone said, "What's in the new book?" It's just about accepting Christianity, right? It's not really... Um, I'm not... It's a Christian book, of course. Um, you know, you can uh, guess by the, the little cross. It's a Christian book. But... Prayers... There's one prayer in it. There's not all that much mention of God. Uh, explicitly in, in, until maybe the last third, it's about the, the it's about a, it's about a, a step of conversion, which I think is criminally and critically underarticulated. Which is a lot of conversion books. I'm thinking most famously of uh, Home Sweet Rome by Scott Hahn and Lewis, even C.S. Lewis's um, what's it called? Ode, Ode to Joy, I think it is, is still 
sort of steeped and it's it, it it sort of begins where god begins and that's 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 not the tough bit that's not the difficult part of conversion process and so this book was sought to somehow bridge that impossible language gap of the the, the process where you're ha- you know for anyone who is who's sort of an ex-nihilist or ex-relativist or ex-atheist uh, to look back you you you're like wow you know my my 15 year old self would be up in arms uh, about me even going to church let alone writing a 150 page fictional book about the experience in a positive light so being able to articulate that of how how it is one got to the other i think firstly is important for discussing saying to atheists look here's the internal experience because this is what this that whole book is really a an allegorical in, in discussion of what's going on internally as you convert uh not convert in the in the signing the forms and going to church sense of the physical doing the doing the step sense of what is the internal conversion that's happening and that that set that thing is the hardest bit to explain and it's the hardest bit to to really discuss with anyone and that's that's why i thought it was so important to write about if i have kids will i send them to steiner schools i mean i don't know too much about i know that you know steiner was very famous for his educational stuff uh and and, and theories but I don't know all that much uh, about Steiner schools. Um, I, I'd either do that. Or I, it would either be the, one of those sorts of, you know, Montessori school or Steiner school, but or homeschooled. I wouldn't want to send them to uh, major education because, you, well, you know why. Uh, someone just supported me, so uh, thanks very much. Um, uh, the the yeah the YouTube support is great and it's very very much appreciated. Uh, so that's Roscoe Pico Train. Thanks very much. Um, um, so yeah so the book the book is on Amazon things like that of course um, what else have we got planned um, there is going to be obviously the Edith Stein the problem of empathy uh, talks but for that I have to read through some Husserl and Husserl is horrendous to read so there you go and there's also some other shorter books that I want to do talks on um, one is Joseph uh, Joseph Piper's The Le- uh, Leisure, Their Basis of Culture. And one is a book which inspired Kaczynski, which is sort of underappreciated. Uh, and I spoke about with Sean Fleming, which is uh, the, the Human Zoo by Desmond Morris, um, which is uh, basically a zoologist looking at civilization from the perspective of a zoologist and seeing why it is we do what we do and we act, how we act, how we act. Um, someone said excited to see you cover meditation on the tarot thanks very much oh, that was Holly thanks very much Holly does being a cath change your relationship with JMD no not at all not at all uh, it won't change my relationship with anyone I'm not as I said it's not uh, I'm not moving into that sort of missionary um, uh, you know oh you're now wrong right like no I'm, I'm still super super interested in in all the other ways of seeing things, this is the one that I believe I believe is the truth and works for me. I, but but to suddenly say that people who've spent 40, 60 years in their personal spiritual pursuit, which has turned them into maybe a better person, a more wholesome person, a more harmonious person, who's giving and generous, and charitable and friendly and warm in their community and a good a good husband or etc. etc. Then go, no, you're wrong, and that was all stupid. I mean that that that's ridiculous. Um, don't know <laughs> do i like cats ever ever owned or once owned a pet 
I'm not massive on cats. Um, cats are very selfish and they have agendas and they weird me out because they are mystical creatures who are hell-bent on something. And, uh, yeah, they, as I understand it, they domesticated themselves because they understood that it was a good deal. Whereas dogs were like, we domesticated them and now they just love it. Um, have I ever owned one? No, I've lived with dogs. I've lived with Spaniels before and that's fantastic. They're such lovely animals. Do I want to own one? I'd love to own a dog. I'd love to. I can't have one here, unfortunately. I'd love to own a... Uh, yeah, I'd love to own a, own a dog or have to have a dog as a pet or, or maybe even a bird. A little bird would be brilliant. What do I think is the cardinal difference between the phenomenology of a theist and an atheist? And I mean, this is an extremely important and fascinating philosophical question. Uh, if you go read uh, Converts to the Real by um, Edward Baring, who I did a chat with, you know, you see that when phenomenology comes onto the scene, um, when phenomenology comes onto the scene, the exact same Husserlian phenomenology and philosophy basically sends loads of people towards more towards atheism and loads of people going, ah, actually, no, this proves all the stuff we were saying about Catholicism all along. Um, what do I think the, the, the cardinal difference is between them? Blimey. I mean, that is a really difficult question. That's a truly difficult question. And I, I, and I, I, I can't answer it. What you'd, I think what you'd have to do is, is, I would say, you'd read someone like Stein in conversation with someone like Heidegger and see what's happening there. Uh, I, and I would actually say that there's a lot of biographical stuff happening there. Um, I'm a very biographical thinker when it comes to philosophers, um, and I've just begun to sort of really dislike Heidegger. So, yeah. Um, do I think distrib distributum is still a feasible answer to the social question? Um, I, don't, uh, I don't... I've got a, a copy of The Servile State by Hilaire Belloc, to to read and possibly do a, do a chat on uh but i don't know all that much about distributism yet you know it's like one of the very catholic things i need to know i guess what do i think of jay dyer i just haven't spent that much time with jay dyer people go on about him he seems like he knows his stuff when it comes to orthodox uh orthodox um uh theology but um uh yeah yeah oh how does it feel to be a pisces in the end of the age of pisces I don't know. I don't know what it was it like to be a Pisces. I'm doing a chat about astrology soon with John with JMG, my main man. Can't wait. Was Gurdjieff an authentic spiritualist or just a rascal? Much like French philosophers, most mystical or spiritual thinkers are one part authentic, one part plagiarist, and one part bullshit artist or charlatan. And um, yeah, that's what you need to know. He was he was both. He was an authentic spiritualist. He was a rascal, the rascal saint, as he's called, and he was a charlatan at times. But he openly admits. People go, you know, Gurdjieff painted birds. Uh, a bright color and sold them to people and he's a complete con artist Gurdjieff put that in his own biography in meetings with remarkable men um so i mean i don't understand what people are getting at he he he, he was a i mean a lot of spiritualism is about uh stripping back to the absurdity of things to the to the, to the very 
to 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 a clarity which is almost seemingly too simple. Um, Alan Watts, though, you know, just to connect the two, Alan Watts is theory on Gurdjieff, especially with um, the the uh, book that many of us in the groups have been reading now for over a year, The Great Tomb, uh, Beelzebub's Tales of His Grandson, the 1,200-page great mystical magnum opus of the man himself. Alan Watts basically said, you, you know, you do realise the point of Gurdjieff is to push you to such a limit that you realise it's all nonsense and that internal feeling allows you to be freed up for more spiritual growth and I, I you know I still like the theory but I don't agree with it um, you ever overwhelmed by all the knowledge that exists um, no I, sometimes but no no because you slowly begin to simplify and um, enjoy the little things I was talking to someone about this the other day about you know that midwit meme where it goes up now in the middle and if you if you actually put if you put age on that, as in the human age, it makes complete sense, right? Children, uh, over here, children are interested in the very simple things. Ooh, a cake. Ooh, that's enjoyable. Ooh, a nice game of football. And as you age, oh, you get to about 15, 16. Oh, it needs to be a bit more complicated. It needs to be complicated. And then you get to the peak midwit bit, about mid-30s, especially for an academic. Everything has to be the most complicated thing in the world. And then what? Then what happens? You get to about 50. Uh, okay, it's actually simpler again. You know, you're having the David Stove moment or the the David Hume moment. Then you get to about 60, you no longer care. You want to retire, you want to go back to just eating cake and sitting by a river. 70, what do those people care about? They care about playing with their grandkids and, and just doing nice things, right? The, the purpose of life is to be able to probably keep that line as low as possible and still have that complexity and understanding, but understanding all the small things that they're beautiful. So there you go. That's my little midwit meme for you. How much do I bench? Uh, <laughs> now we're talking. Now we're talking. How much do I bench? Uh, I'll give you my my totals for when I was at my peak. I couldn't tell you now because I'm I basically just do home workouts at the moment because gyms around here were getting too expensive and it just wasn't worth my time. Uh, but I could I could deadlift one sixty kg. I could bench one ten. And I could squat 100 and I could overhead press 60, 65. Uh, not amazing. Uh, I was about 75 kilos at the time. There you go. Do you think classical authentic astrology is congruent with Christianity? It's very difficult because the idea of a classical or authentic astrology in like, if you're talking Hellenistic or it's congruent with Christianity. I mean, there is stuff in Christianity. I mean, for instance... When Jesus is born, a star comes from the east. I mean, astrologers, astrologers have looked into this, and then there is a there's an uh, there's an orthodox theory about this, which says that I've got it in notes regarding um, I can't remember. Unfortunately, the star of divine grace. Um, so yeah, and it's a prophecy in numbers, like twenty three forty seven, I think, or something like that. Yeah. Um, so it's um, whether or not it's congruent is 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 it's difficult to say. How's the tales reading group going? Uh, there's two Beelzebub's tales. Um, uh, there's two Beelzebub's tales reading groups. One on Tuesdays and one on Sundays. Um, the one on the one on Tuesdays has now been running almost fifty weeks. Um, 
and it's an 82 week reading group and the other one is on about week 30 something and they're going really well um yeah um is there anywhere overseas you'd love to visit bonus if there's philosophical theological motivation yeah i mean the main places i'd ever want to visit are just because of philosophical or uh theological motivation i don't have an opinion on i don't know sorry i don't have an, uh, an appeal to just go on a holiday you know like i don't need a break i don't want a break you know there's no it's, 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 just for, it's just for people who are boring i mean what do you need a break from i've got stuff to do i've got stuff to write stuff to build you know conversations to have um but yes so one i'd love to just i mean unfortunately you can't visit there because i think the owners really hate gurdjieff but the priory where gurdjieff where you where gurdjieff you know was was, was teaching uh, in uh, la fontainebleau uh, for however many years would be beautiful just just to see it and, and just to be able to see gurdjieff's grave if you can and see the plaque of catherine Hulme who passed away there and also maybe visit the gurdjieff's flat while i was there and that would be nice i also want to visit uh, ernst junger's house um which is um open to the public like one or two days a week and it's got all this stuff in it's beautiful manner in the, in the heart of the the german countryside um there's there's probably you know a few more that i'd have to think on where to start with astrology you know i've never fully got my head around astrology and every time i i buy like i find a book which is like here's how to start with astrology the first 20 pages are fine and then they're like they're just like and here's 50 houses and 50 different symbols that you need to memorize um, and I bought a, a very old set. It's one of my most treasured book possessions. Um, a full set of Alan Leo's. Uh, so that's the best place I've found is Alan Leo's astrological works from like 1911. Uh, and you probably find scannings. They're probably on archive.org. But they're very straightforward and very simple. And But but unfortunately, astrology doesn't, doesn't seem to have a very simple starting point. Really, if you understand what it is in general, then you just have to get going with like memorizing the, the symbols, the houses, the signs, and all that stuff. And and um, yeah, um, yeah. But you know, yeah. Uh, other than that, I can't really give you many advice. Oh, someone asked a good question. Here we go. Is Heidegger and com comitant works overrated? Let's just forget that middle bit. Is Heidegger overrated? Yeah. Yeah, he is. Um, he's overrated, but also he basically did one of the single most damaging philosophical blows to God uh, imaginable. Because he doesn't... Nietzsche says God is dead. You think that is the most... But it's like, no, God God dying, unfortunately, is already within Christianity. Like, yeah, God did die, and then he rose up he rose from the dead. I mean, that's the whole point is the resurrection is the major point, right? Um, but Heidegger, Heidegger keeps God, but imminentizes him as this sort of flesh-like symbol within his philosophy and then destroys that symbol. And it's really harrowing to watch him do this uh, from his bitter position where he didn't become a priest. So uh, I uh, see Heidegger on the way out, to be honest. I don't know where he all fits fits in. Um, why do I think Christianity is in decline? That's no surprise, really. I mean, Christianity's maybe this is heretical to say. Has hasn't Christianity always been in decline in a way? Like you know, this is the kingdom of the devil. This world is the kingdom of the devil. So everything in this world is always going to be trying to push Christianity down. But I get what you mean. I mean, it's been in decline since um, uh, 
in modern times, it's been in decline since the 60s, right? The sexual revolution. But before that, you have the industrial re revolution and the enlightenment. And you just keep having these things, which are... Then you have the reformation. And basically, it's been this this sort of cyclic thing where each cycle gives you something else which decreases it. But I think I think now we're actually on the way back up for a little bit. Um, yeah. Uh, do I like slash read classic literature? If so, have you read Marcel Proust's magnum opus in search of lost time, remembrance of things past? Um, I have a huge list of classic literature that I want to get through. Um, and I have, I have Proust to read because Girard draws on Proust. Is it Proust, Flaubert... Uh, and a couple of others and st st I can't remember but yeah th but there's this sort of canonized list that I'd love to slowly get through in my lifetime but I haven't spent much time with Proust no unfortunately didn't Kant do that to God too yeah Kant did do that to God and the the, the people who say that you know Kant in in you know in his biography he's this like Someone will have to remember the denomination that he is of Protestantism, but it's like it just seemed it came across as the most utilitarian, dull, you know, sacrament and divine mysticism stripped strain of Protestantism, which is, you know, and Kant does this whole thing where he's like, which itself is very damaging with his ethics, right? And Kant even he's still using the language of the Catholic Church, the idea of duty for, for you know. He, he basically is trying to say, right, well, let's remove God from the equation, then try work out morals, and then if that works, then we put God back in and it all makes sense. He's just an atheist. And he did he also did do damage, yeah. From my perspective as a Zoomer who was irreligious, I think it's because Christianity completely failed to teach his message. Um, it's very Christianity is very reluctant to modernise itself. And, and I guess what we could say, especially with Protestantism, is that in its attempt to modernise itself, the modernisation has overtaken. Now, I'll explain this with a Lullian, a Lullian <laughs> terms, in, in this is coming up in the next talk for subs and patrons, is that Alul talks about ends and means, you know, the means justify the ends. And he's saying that we, um, we no longer have ends anymore. We just do not have ends. We only have means. So technique is like... Technique is basically efficiency, productivity, things have to be better, faster, stronger, etc. right? That's all we have is more means. And the only successful means is just the means that is successful. And I would say that modern Christianity no longer has the ends. It doesn't focus on the kingdom of God is within you. Which, which, So the reason to act as a Christian is you always act in relation to the end, which is the end times, the end days, the eschaton, which is coming. But you understand that end in relation to every single present act so your means now are quite literally the same end in each act so you act now your means justify your ends which in, in themselves is the eternal now of god right modern christianity doesn't have that it doesn't seem to really focus on that it's all means so it just keeps sort of going along without it just modern christianity i mean it, you know yeah it didn't it didn't it doesn't teach the message and this is where the big misconceptions about christ is like christ is just this nice dude you know christ wouldn't that's not very christian of you uh, okay you know whatever have i <laughs> have i heard anything about the ccru uh i've done a i don't know if this is i've done a course on this the uh, ccru if you uh if you are interested if you type in um uh, Hermetics CCIU in Google, you'll 
you'll find I did a course on the CCIU, uh, if you're interested. Thoughts on Eastern philosophy slash religion? I mean, that's that's such a huge question. Um, I haven't spent much time with Eastern philosophy, and I haven't spent I haven't spent much time with Eastern philosophy. Now, Eastern religion, Buddhism, interesting, but the works that that we get as Westerners for Eastern religion are usually from Western thinkers. So Alan Watts, great, but I always think like this is all a bit this is all a bit understood from our Western perspective, you know. And um I remember Abdul Ad, Abdul Hakim Murad in our chat is basically saying, you know, with with Judaism, Islam and Christianity, the Abrahamic religions, that Abrahamic foundation is 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 very easy for the for a Westerner to 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 merge with, to mold with. Eastern religions not so, and I think there is this, there is just this cultural void that you, I'm just never going to get, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, um, have I read Christ the Eternal Tao? Uh, maybe we get an episode or lecture on it. Heard of, heard amazing things about this book, so it's on my list. Um, what do you think about the Gnostic ideas about the Pleroma, Sophia, and the Old Testament God as a false god? I don't know them all that well. Um, there, there is, of course, elements of Gnosticism that, that interest me. And in, in Charon's book, uh, Tears and Saints, he, he draws on Gnosticism in that, in a certain sense. And I think Gnosticism has to be taken, has to be understood seriously. You know, you can't just, um, you know, and the, to be honest, the Gnostic Gospels are very interesting. Um you know, there's still wisdom. There's still wisdom in these texts. You know, in the, in the Catholic Catechism, it says that there are rays of light, as in rays of truth, in 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 many other paths. But the complete truth is in the Catholic Church. So just you know, the idea of like, right, I'm a Christian now, disregard it all. It's it's very very silly, and you know, I'd, you'd be hard pressed to find anyone serious who who would do that. Um, what's your take on the human paradigm? Uh, you'd have to explain what you mean by human uh, human paradigm. Uh, unfortunately, uh, a couple of people saying happy birthday. Thank you. Uh, it's not exactly today because, uh, but it was it was one week ago, and uh, I got two presents. I got a kidney stone and a car crash. So thank you very much. But thank you very much. Any thoughts on Marshall McLuhan and his works? Is he worth reading in today's world? Uh, yeah, absolutely worth reading. Um, and genuine, like genuinely, authentically, I mean that the best person to learn Marshall McLuhan from is Bob Dobbs. Uh, if you want, if you want to truly intuitively learn Marshall McLuhan, Bob Dobbs is your man. Um, Definitely worth reading today. I would recommend starting with something actually called uh, Counterblast, uh, which is very short, punchy work, really fun. And, and the way it's formed really gets into you quite quickly. After that, of course, you could you could tackle um, you know, understanding media or some of the more dry text. But McLuhan's quite fun to read, and he draws on things in such a peculiar way. Um uh, someone said, I heard before you got your bachelor's, bachelor's in art. Can you share some of your favorite contemporary modern artists as well as your favorite pre-modern artists? Uh, my favorite modern or, you know, contemporary artists are Gerhard Richter, um, Eve Klein, Anselm Kiefer, Barnett Newman, uh, Mondrian, uh, Clifford Still. Uh, yeah, around them, pre-modern. Uh, I was never, I was never huge, huge. I mean, I, I don't know if no Egon Schiele wouldn't be pre-modern. I don't, I don't really have that many pre-modern, unfortunately. Yeah, that's the answer to that one. What do I think of Catholic exorcisms? I think they're legit, and I think there's probably going to be more and more of them coming in the in the recent years. I mean, you want to listen to the the, the talks by um, Father Chad Ripperger. Um, uh, yeah, 
listen to the talks by Father Chad Ripperger and you'll understand what's going on there. And really fantastic talks by him, by the way. Uh, someone says their mum used to date Richter. Wow. Sort of a strange little anecdote. Um, what else is coming up? What else is coming up? Um, right, so I'm going through a few things that are coming up as well. Uh, I've got an episode on Mik Mikhail Bakhtin coming up. Um, I've got one on Irving Babbitt and a few other little things that are the the second part to Decline of the West is being uploaded, the Wittgenstein one, one on Hobbes. Um, yeah. How much time do I spend each day reading? I would say between four and six hours a day. It's the bulk of the job. Because unlike some other podcasts, not all podcast hosts, but some others who are doing this kind of thing, not all podcast hosts are talking to people who have written books and theory, right? So it's not exactly fair to say that. But, but the ones that are, not all of them are spending the time reading the the work. And I do like to to try do that. Um, so yeah, that's about how long. Uh, some of that, two, usually about two hours of that is leisure. And I mean, I, mean, I love reading. It's like one of my favorite things to do. So uh, yeah, I mean, for, about four, four to six hours. Do I have a favorite philosopher and how much of Kierkegaard's work? How much have you read of Kierkegaard's work? Favourite philosopher, you, if you're talking strictly philosophy, blimey. I, I would honestly, I think I would have to say, I would have to say Michel Serre, just for the beauty, the ability to, to, to read, just read it and sit and read it and uh, be affected by it and not, not always have this like nagging thing that you're missing something or that you have to, it's really the perfect balance of philosophy for me that it's beautiful, it's poetic it's emotional it's also physical because he's talking about the flesh he's talking about skin and senses a lot of the time and it's also still intellectual if you want to go into it into that way you can and he's a very balanced conscious harmonious philosopher um um but you know favorite if we if we're to include anyone really i mean of course i'm going to say gurdjieff because he's just changed my life more than anyone uh in a way you could add a c.s lewis in there um yeah. How did I take my notes at university or did you just do the readings and write by memory? Uh it depends what I'm doing. I mean, when I've done like the Kant lectures and when I was when I was studying Heidegger, I, really you end up almost you type like a quarter of the page per page, you know, in notes just to just to get it. Um the best the best the some people learn just by reading it and understanding it. Some people do other things. I, gen I tend to have to almost teach it to myself, right? So that's the way that the way that works best for me is basically to go right. I've read all that now. Teach it back to myself as if I could then tell someone else. Like, all right, if you, the only way to know that you've learned something is to be able to teach it. And when I'm doing my lectures and when I'm re reading through my notes of talks, often I'll be reading through them and go, "That makes sense. That makes sense." And when I'm saying it out loud, I realize, "No, I don't really get that bit." And you really quickly find your gaps in knowledge doing it that way. Um, is hyper-reality an underrated concept in today's discourse? I'm really sceptical of all these terms which use hyper or late or like supra or whatever, you know, when you go like hyper-capitalism or blah, blah, blah. It's like the thing is the thing. Hyper-reality is like, well, that's reality. Cause I, you, know, I, you know, I get it as a useful de definition, I guess, but I don't know exactly... Uh, what would be meant because it's one of those difficult terms already yeah well like i said i wouldn't know 
what would be spent meant by it. What's my understanding of the postmodern condition? Re ultimately, relativism. And I mean, I think postmodernism is weirdly dying, and we're moving into sort of a you know how like the polis political city states of Rome were just this completely fragmented thing where basically you just get camps of people who draw a line around and say we're this thing. I think we're just moving into that and you're just going to find people who are postmodernists with against people who are very sincere monarchists or sincere modernists or whatever it is. It's going to be quite beautiful, I think. And I mean, postmodernism of course was always going to die. I don't think it ever had life. Uh it was sort of a it was postmodernism was sort of inherently uh like a a, a necromancer, right? It's like vampirically living off everything else you saw this when you went to galleries and, and things like this it was like this can't this can't last this is a terminal death cry of all meaning you know it just can't last um have you seen adam curtis's documentaries yeah i've, I've seen them and i think they're really great uh, introductions to a lot of the, the problems of today um i haven't seen his latest one but um century of the self was fantastic do i vote in elections no i don't vote um, I guess I should explain that, but I just, uh, I mean, for me, that's almost a Gajifian thing now, right? Like everything happens, no one does anything. Voting from, voting really is just a, a case of hypnotism. Like who's the better hypnotist? Who's the, the, the least thrifty hypnotist, right? Who, who can get all the monetary backing behind them and prove to you something that you never cared about that you suddenly do care about. Uh, and politicians, people need to remember, really remember this with politicians, that being a politician is a job. It's not some almost transcendental divine position within society. Like, oh my God, they're a politician, as if that's some high thing. It's a job. It's a cushy job with a nice wage and you sit around all day and you talk and you just try to get driven around, driven around and you talk to constituencies or whatever and you don't solve anything and nothing changes. I don't vote because nothing has ever changed which has affected me or anyone immediate to me to me's life in any discernible way. Not that I can not, you know, like the biggest thing that probably happened that was literally like a physical noticeable change was school dinners got changed. And I think that's because of Jamie Oliver. And before people get up in arms and say, well, of course it didn't change to you. You're 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 privileged. You're a privileged straight white male. So what? So, so you know, there's, uh, I, I, I come from a, a working class background that eventually became middle class. And, you know, I went through the system and I had all the same opportunities as everyone else. And I could have, I could have been lazy and I could have failed and I didn't blah, blah, blah. Um, I just, uh, I don't for that reason because it just doesn't change anything um and i don't think that's how power works i mean people with voting you're literally you're saying like can we have power well that's not how power works um i'm 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 behind a monarch a monarchy for that reason that if you if you're going to be in charge like democracy doesn't work for this reason right because the, 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 the great the great paradox and annoyance and frustration for me of democracy is is really in, in, in encapsulated in the idea that when democracy fails right when when a government gets voted in and they fail people go well this is what we voted in so the people are to blame but when a government gets voted in and they succeed ah now it of course is the party it's the reason the, the reason is the party this time so it's democracy always has a get out of jail free card with regards to responsibility for itself um and yeah i just think it's, a, it's, it's i don't think there's really any any such thing because as soon as you enter into that everyone has a say thing then um there's there's just unfathomably and an unfathomable amount of factors with regards to what is influencing people's minds and and some of them are very very easy to control um yeah do you think the movement away from relativism will result in an objective system of meaning that isn't useful 
That's, I mean, that's that's a really good that's a really good idea. I think I think the move away from relativism is is more of a retreat, right? As in Saint Augustine talking about a retreat to God, um, and most people aren't unfortunately like the horizons the horizons have already been drawn in a way and most people aren't going to find stuff to going forward i don't mean a retreat to the past i mean a retreat to something that was already there in the first the first first case and everything else that was promised is gone is bunk and people just retreat it's a retreat to the internal kingdom uh, and and that where the objective values have always been the ones that are obvious and always made sense right um so but i think i do i do see what you mean and i think we, we were seeing this with sort of the um some some right and some left and the attempts to somehow create you just can't create an objective value system without god you just cannot do it um you can say that you've got it but you can't do it um not voting is almost also very much in line with Jung's forest rebel yeah yeah yeah, definitely definitely i mean the the forest passage in homageville is two huge inspirations like two two of my biggest inspirations uh in terms of terms of my own politics and the, and the, the evolution of those politics have i read the essence of nihilism by Emmanuel Severino. Uh, no, I haven't, unfortunately. Um, I, I, I want to read more of like serious nihilistic philosophy, like in terms of the actual theory of it, because I just don't see what they can do. Like, <laughs> once everything's meaningless, like, why the hell are you even writing? You know, why bother? Um, huge red pull. Is Foucault's writing on biopolitics more relevant today than ever? Um, it's, extremely, it's extremely important, um, but I, it just doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't, it doesn't appear in the right places. Like philosophy's, philosophy's quite. Philosophy's like someone who's still using a home phone. You know, it's like just, it's just behind. It just for some reason just is always skeptical of the bleeding edge. Like the problem with philosophy is that it can only really take something seriously once it's been solidified as something to take seriously by society or culture and so you never have this bleeding edge of philosophy where like the conferences are always a little bit behind and there's there's a there's a lag philosophy has a lag it has a time delay and to catch that up i think philosophy had become important again um but we, we've become very suspicious of manifestos and things which are trying to be of the future uh yeah uh what are some of the objective values that you think have always been there Well, the I I personally don't believe I was ever taught not to kill. I don't think I was ever taught that. It it appeared in teaching in school, you know, Ten Commandments. But as I heard it, I thought, well, yeah, that makes sense. And what C.S. Lewis calls natural law, just this internal understanding of what is right, uh, uh, th that has always been there. And anything else, I mean, you know, the theological understanding of good and evil is that, that, that or the light and the darkness, if you want, is that that goodness and light is already there. And evil can only ever be a bastardization, a mutation of good. Evil can't uh, ever create anything of its own. Tolkien's fantastic on this, right? People go, well, well, the orcs just look like, it's like, yeah, the orcs are crappy men, right? They're, they're. They're a, they're a bastardization of the creation of God, right? Their goodness has been, all evil can do is take something that the good made and ruin it. That's all it can ever do. And so the way you move away and the, the way that, that that natural law is is ruined is is 
just by these very long societal justifications. But ultimately, there would be a point, I think, where some of them, especially when they're related to pleasure, are very easy to overlook and they're very easy to justify, even though you, you just instinctively know they're not right. But um, there's 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 many that I don't... I wonder if society would ever be able to justify on like a collective level. Um, who knows? Maybe. Am I familiar with uh, Giorgio uh, or uh, Agamben's? Sorry. Oh, no, hang on. Do you think natural rights are the best basis for all laws? It seems like the Thomas natural rights are different from, than Enlightenment, folks. Uh, I haven't read too much on natural rights. It seems like you're using a very specific terms there, so I'll have to avoid that, unfortunately. Um, I, am I familiar with Giorgio Agamben's work, State of Emergency, Where Are We Now, etc.? Uh, if so, what are my thoughts on him? I, I've, I know of Agamben, and I had a book called Something Sovereign by Agamben that I started to read. I'd like to read his new one. I think he wrote one on the, the Garden of Eden or something like that, which was um, looked very, very interesting. Um, yeah, I'll probably give this chat another 20 minutes to half an hour. So any more questions that people have, um, let me know. And as it's a birthday, I think most of us will probably move into uh, the the Hermetics Discord and just chat chat there for most of the remaining night for anyone who's interested in doing that. I'm sure someone will link an invitation in the chat. So, yeah. Oh, here we go. Blimey. <laughs> do you get lonely? How do you stave off loneliness? I don't mean solitude exactly. More like a lack of fulfilling friendships and relationships. Yeah, man. It's the modern world, isn't it? Um, yeah, okay. I'll go into I'm happy to go into this. Do I, get, I mean... It, there's, there, there's a mystical well not mystical there's an exercise um, given in a few uh, texts where you are to uh, watch your life as if it's um, a cinema as if it's a film you know so when you're going about your day you just you just watch your life as it's as if it's playing usually what we try to do in life is we always try to direct the film it's playing we always try like oh no I don't want to do that I don't want to do that that was annoying that was bad I'm annoyed about that or blah 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 and um, you try to change it in some way which is agreeable to you. And the exercise is really just to watch it, to be open to it, and just to allow it to be. And many people who watch this will understand from this and do do this exercise. They'll understand that they may very well be lonely. They may see someone who's just doing something, everything on their own. They're sitting in on their, sitting in on their own. They're going to the shops on their own. They're going to the gym on their own. And they're quite a lonely person. But from this, you can sort of realize that you can be lonely but not lonely. Which may, if I don't know if that makes any sense. But a lot of energy can be expended. A lot of, let's say, like loneliness energy can be expended on the idea of being lonely when the reality wouldn't change if you didn't expend that energy. So you can be lonely and not lonely. Um, um, how do you stave it off? I don't stave it. I mean, I've always got things to do. I think most people get lonely. Uh, Fulfilling friendships and relationships. I wouldn't worry so much about a lack of fulfilling friendships and relationships. I don't believe the average person has more than three or four fulfilling friendships, more than three or four, or maybe up to ten fulfilling relationships. Relationships general, and I mean, I include friendships, deep friendships in that. Take up a lot of work and a lot of time, and uh, you know, it's 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 it, 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 to, to say otherwise. I mean, it's been one of the great the great tyrannies of the modern world of of the idea of like friends on Facebook, right? Of people having hundreds and hundreds of friends. It's, it's very tyrannous. It's not, it's just not how life is. And then, yeah. Um, 
And I don't think you need to stave it off. You know, it's fine to it's fine to be that way. I mean, once again, this is another one of the. I, th I think this is in. Um, yeah, a great book to read would be David Vincent's Solitude, where he talks about the rise of, of lone. Like so, we've always had solitude as a solitude as a concept, but loneliness is, uh, as I understand it, if I remember correctly, it's, it's a relatively new, um, a new and sort of semiotic invention, and. You know, the idea of loneliness is a very modern phenomena in a very, especially over-socialized world. It's like one of those, you know, Krishnamurti once again, that it's, um, it's, uh, to, 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 to attune yourself to a sick society is no measure of health, right? So, um, in the same way, that idea of why do I feel lonely? It's like, well, who's telling me what it actually even is to be lonely, right? Especially in a very heavily over-socialized uh, society where they're like, dude, you should get out more. You should go here and here and here and here. And then you'd go those places and you hate them, right? That seems to be what most of the society is. And it's probably why so many people have to drink all the time to enjoy all the things that they don't actually enjoy. Just my own theory, though. So maybe uh, I'm just a bitter hermit. Who knows? Someone said, happy birthday. Uh, thank you very much. And thanks for the kind words about the channel. Hey, I have an embarrassing question. I feel like I'm too stupid to actually understand philosophy. I'm right there with you, man. This is why I do what I do. Even after having spent almost five to six years in trying to decipher what it really means, what must I do? I mean, that's a great question. It really is a great question. Um, is, you know, what, what to do with philosophy when... And a lot of people get in this bind... Especially, especially at the moment with popular philosophy, where people are literally referencing, they're, like, they're, they're recommending like Deleuze and Guattari and Heidegger and all these Foucault. It's like, I don't know. I would, I would almost, I would almost go back and and read like Plato. For the five five dialogues is a good entry point, or even the Republic, and go back to philosophers who are who would, who who have got clear. You know, they're looking for truth. A lot of modern philosophers, you know, don't always have a problem with them, but they're very, they're very caught up in some very minute details which they're interested in, which is fine now. But go back to philosophers who were really after that search of wisdom, that search of truth. Descartes, not so much Kant, but Descartes, um, Plato, Aristotle, maybe. Go back to them. I mean, Descartes is, Descartes' Meditations is a great start because it's actually a very practical text that could be used even as meditations. Um, I would start there. Um, a good book, in a way, would be Anthony Kenny's History of, of, of Philosophy, which is like a, a sort of a better version of Bertrand Russell's. And it's very straightforward, and you can go, sort of go through the history of philosophy and, and see see what what the trajectory and what the reason is and if after that i mean another thing you could think of is is um a, a thing to do is what is a problem that you you yourself think i wonder you know i wonder what that is i wonder why it is i see things the way i see things or what how do i know what i know and um then then find um someone who's dealt with that yeah um uh am i familiar with the nihilistic philosophical treaties the Conspiracy Against the Human Race by Thomas Logotti. Yeah, I'm familiar with it. I and what are my thoughts on it? I'm familiar with it, and I think, to be honest, Logotti deals with pretty much every thinker in that book in bad faith. If I remember right, he deals with Charon, Schopenhauer, Weininger, Nietzsche, and if I remember right, he doesn't deal with Charon very well at all. 
and he 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 sort of condenses Schopenhauer into just the pessimistic thing. Mm, no, I didn't. I didn't like it. I just thought it was it was like it is what I what I call bleaker than thou thought. Right? It's like you've sat down and you're like, how how bleak, how nihilistic can I get? You know, how bleak can I get? And the irony of nihilism is like, well, it it isn't bleak because if everything's meaningless, then there's no such thing as being bleak. And then, and if if everything's meaningless, then it can't mean anything that it is meaningless. Therefore, it can't be bad that it's meaningless. So why are you all so down all the time? Oh my God, it's all meaningless. Well, no, you can't act like that because it's meaningless. Fools. What are my views on understanding a text? How is how important is it to understand? Usually, uh, understand the whole idea of understanding the text is a completely is a is a massive overblown French nonsense from from Barth and Derrida. Read the text; most of them are understandable in their own right. And this discussion I was having just recently was. Always read the primary source text first if you're able to understand it. Then read the secondary, then listen to the lecture or whatever it is. Because 99% of the time, you're going to read it, you're going to come to your own conclusion, then you're going to go read the secondary and you're going to think these thoughts. You're going to think, how in the world did this person come to this conclusion? That's what you're going to think, because it happens all the time. Come to your own conclusions about the text. Uh, the whole idea of understanding a text usually a way to... Uh, subsume something into an ideology that it was never meant to be part of you know um really skeptical stuff on all of that you know the hermeneu the hermeneutics of blah 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 like just you no know, just read the thing just read the thing uh do i sit or stand when while meditating do if i got a special cushion <laughs> what color is it i just i tend to sit as long as your knees are below your abdomen you're fine i, I just sit because i'm not very flexible <laughs> So uh, I can't do the cross-legged thing. Who wrote the history of philosophy that I mentioned? I'll, uh, I'll type it in the chat for you. Anthony Kenny. Anthony Kenny. Are the French philosophers, Derrida, Lyotard, Deleuze, Foucault, etc., worth the time invested necessary to read the works? This really, this is really tough question in a way. It's, 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 it's a bit of a pickle because, I mean, for instance, I haven't spent all, I haven't spent all that much time with Derrida, but I spent uh, some time with... I mean, I've even forgot the name of it. It's the one which has system structure and whatever it is in it. And I just, just thought, this is just a waste of my time. Lyotard, on the other hand, I mean, is really different. Lyotard's a huge variance because he's poetic at times. You have things like Libidal and Economy, which I thought was like one of the most exciting, explosive philosophical texts ever. Um, but whether or not it's worth someone's time is really is really subjective towards their um, what they're doing. Um the what was i going to say uh but then on the other hand the postmodern condition by leotard is a very useful text deleuze foucault you know foucault's got like the 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 uh, good lord the order of things which is very tough tough work but then you have something like madness and civilization uh and the, the very useful books in a way and, and really these guys very very much differ um one sec let me just get that the Discord link for you all. Um, oh, hang on. Yeah. Um, any further further questions? Um, there's a Discord link for you. Um, yeah. Otherwise, blimey, it's almost been two hours. I'm amazed that people have listened. 
um yeah thanks everyone i mean probably slowly winding down but if any more questions come in i will answer them but thanks for all the support uh the book is available on amazon just type in be not afraid james ellis it should come up uh you know much appreciated it anyone who's supporting the podcast thanks very much uh, and anyone who's listening to this who who really enjoys the podcast then please think about um supporting um yeah cool that seems to be a good place to wrap it up someone said it's okay to be stupid just read i'm in agreement man i'm in agreement uh oh am i interested in talking with luke smith i i was in emails with luke smith um a while ago and i was sort of excited about doing the episode but the the it was um I think Luke's sort of living, you know, he's living the dream life out there. So, uh, you know, and he's doing, he sort of ch chats about these things. Um, he chats about these sorts of things on his own anyway. So I don't, you know, I don't think this conversation would add much. Um, yeah. Someone said, Happy New Year. How old am I? I'm <laughs> 28. Yeah, uh, I know I don't look it. Someone said, I just watched your course about the CCIU. Wouldn't mind buying it. Uh, it's a bit expensive, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, uh, Adam, if you email me here, I'll, uh, I can help you out. Um, thanks all for the happy birthdays. Would you ever host a talk between two philosophers? It's quite difficult to host those sorts of talks, but I mean, if, if such a thing was happened, then maybe I tried, yeah, I tried once to sort of list it. It's quite difficult and the time zones and things like that. And yeah, it's, it's tough, but if, 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 if it happened, I would. I try. I did try with certain people once, and it just it ends up in a big email stream of, of uh, difficulty. Am I familiar with the work of Henry Bortoft? No, unfortunately, I'm not. But I'll add it now to the list of people. Um, yeah. Okay, I'm gonna finish up the stream, and yeah, I'll be in Discord for anyone who wants to, to chat and chill for a bit. Thanks everyone for for joining the stream. Um, yeah. Thanks for all the support.